Book fifteen, chapters fifteen through twenty one of the City of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by St. Augustine of Hippo, Book fifteen. Chapter fifteen. Some one, then, will say, Is it to be believed that a man who intended to beget children, and had no intention of continence, abstained from sexual intercourse a hundred years and more, or even, according to the Hebrew version, only a little less, say eighty, seventy, or sixty years, or, if he did not abstain, was unable to beget offspring? This question admits of two solutions for either puberty was so much later as the whole life was longer, or, which seems to me more likely, it is not the first-born sons that are here mentioned, but those whose names were required to fill up the series until Noah was reached, from whom again we see that the succession is continued to Abraham, and after him down to that point of time until which it was needful to mark by pedigree the course of the most glorious city, which sojourns as a stranger in this world, and seeks the heavenly country. That which is undeniable is that Cain was the first who was born of man and woman. For had he not been the first who was added by birth to the two unborn persons, Adam could not have said what he is recorded to have said, I have gotten a man by the Lord. He was followed by Abel, whom the elder brother slew, and who was the first to show, by a kind of foreshadowing of the sojourning city of God, what iniquitous persecutions that city would suffer at the hands of wicked, and, as it were, earth-born men, who love their earthly origin, and delight in the earthly happiness of the earthly city. But how old Adam was when he begat these sons does not appear. After this the generations diverge, the one branch deriving from Cain, the other from him whom Adam begot in the room of Abel, slain by his brother, and whom he called Seth, saying, as it is written, For God hath raised me up another seed for Abel, whom Cain slew. These two series of generations accordingly, the one of Cain, the other of Seth, represent the two cities in their distinctive ranks, the one the heavenly city which sojourns on earth, the other the earthly which gapes after earthly joys, and grovels in them as if they were the only joys. But though eight generations, including Adam, are registered before the flood, no man of Cain's line has his age recorded at which the son who succeeded him was begotten. For the Spirit of God refused to mark the times before the flood and the generations of the earthly city, but preferred to do so in the heavenly line, as if it were more worthy of being remembered. Further, when Seth was born, the age of his father is mentioned, but already he had begotten other sons, and who will presume to say that Cain and Abel were the only ones previously begotten? For it does not follow that they alone had been begotten of Adam, because they alone were named in order to continue the series of generations which it was desirable to mention. For though the names of all the rest are buried in silence, yet it is said that Adam begot sons and daughters, and who that cares to be free from the charge of temerity will dare to say how many his offspring numbered. It was possible enough that Adam was divinely prompted to say, after Seth was born, For God hath raised up to me another seed for Abel, because that son was to be capable of representing Abel's holiness, not because he was born first after him in point of time. 
Then, because it is written, And Seth lived two hundred and five years, or, according to the Hebrew reading, one hundred and five years, and begot Enos, who but a rash man could affirm that this was his firstborn? Will any man do so to excite our wonder, and cause us to inquire how for so many years he remained free from sexual intercourse, though without any purpose of continuing so, or how, if he did not abstain, he yet had no children? Will any man do so when it is written of him, and he begat sons and daughters, and all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died? And similarly, regarding those whose years are afterwards mentioned, it is not disguised that they begat sons and daughters. Consequently, it does not at all appear whether he who is named as the son was himself the first begotten. Nay, since it is incredible that those fathers were either so long in attaining puberty, or could not get wives, or could not impregnate them, it is also incredible that those sons were their first-born. But as the writer of the sacred history designed to descend by well-marked intervals through a series of generations to the birth and life of Noah, in whose time the flood occurred, he mentioned not those sons who were first begotten, but those by whom the succession was handed down. Let me make this clearer by here inserting an example in regard to which no one can have any doubt that what I am asserting is true. The evangelist Matthew, where he designs to commit to our memories the generation of the Lord's flesh by a series of parents, beginning from Abraham and intending to reach David, says, Abraham begat Isaac. Why did he not say Ishmael, whom he first begat? Then Isaac begat Jacob. Why did he not say Esau, who was the firstborn? simply because these sons would not have helped him to reach David. Then follows, And Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. Was Judah the first begotten? Judah, he says, begat Perez and Zerah. Yet neither were these twins the firstborn of Judah, but before them he had begotten three other sons. And so in the order of the generations he retained those by whom he might reach David, so as to proceed onwards to the end he had in view. And from this we may understand that the antediluvians who are mentioned were not the first-born, but those through whom the order of the succeeding generations might be carried on to the patriarch Noah. We need not, therefore, weary ourselves with discussing the needless and obscure question as to their lateness of reaching puberty. CHAPTER Sixteen. As, therefore, the human race, subsequently to the first marriage of the man who was made of dust, and his wife who was made out of his side, required the union of males and females in order that it might multiply, and as there were no human beings except those who had been born of these two, men took their sisters for wives, an act which was as certainly dictated by necessity in these ancient days, as afterwards it was condemned by the prohibitions of religion. For it is very reasonable and just that men, among whom concord is honourable and useful, should be bound together by various relationships, and that one man should not himself sustain many relationships, but that the various relationships should be distributed among several, and should thus serve to bind together the greatest number in the same social interests. Father and father-in-law are the names of two relationships. When, therefore, a man has one person for his father, another for his father-in-law, friendship extends itself to a larger number. But Adam, in his single person, was obliged to hold both relations to his sons and daughters, for brothers and sisters were united in marriage. So, too, Eve, his wife, was both mother and mother-in-law to her children of both sexes. While, had there been two women, one the mother, uh, the other the mother-in-law, the family affection would have had a wider field. 
then the sister herself by becoming a wife sustained in her single person two relationships which had they been distributed among individuals one being sister and another being wife the family tie would have embraced a greater number of persons but there was then no material for effecting this since there were no human beings but the brothers and sisters born of those first two parents therefore when an abundant population made it possible men ought to choose for wives women who were not already their sisters for not only would there then be no necessity for marrying sisters but were it done it would be most abominable for if the grandchildren of the first pair being now able to choose their cousins for wives married their sisters then it would no longer be only two but three relationships that were held by one man while each of these relationships ought to have been held by a separate individual so as to bind together by family affection a larger number for one man would in that case be both father and father-in-law and uncle to his own children brother and sister now man and wife and his wife would be mother aunt and mother-in-law to them and they themselves would be not only brother and sister and man and wife but cousins also being the children of brother and sister now all these relationships which combined three men into one would have embraced nine persons had each relationship been held by one individual so that a man had one person for his sister another his wife another his cousin another his father another his uncle another his father-in-law another his mother another his aunt another his mother-in-law and thus the social bond would not have been tightened to bind a few but loosened to embrace a larger number of relations and we see that since the human race has increased and multiplied this is so strictly observed even among the profane worshippers of many and false gods that though their laws perversely allow a brother to marry his sister yet custom with a finer morality prefers to forego this license and though it was quite allowable in the earliest ages of the human race to marry one's sister it is now abhorred as a thing which no circumstances could justify for custom has very great power either to attract or to shock human feeling and in this matter while it restrains concupiscence within due bounds the man who neglects and disobeys it is justly branded as abominable for if it is iniquitous to plough beyond our own boundaries through the greed of gain is it not much more iniquitous to transgress the recognised boundaries of morals through sexual lust and with regard to marriage in the next degree of consanguinity marriage between cousins we have observed that in our own time the customary morality has prevented this from being frequent though the law allows it it was not prohibited by divine law nor as yet had human law prohibited it nevertheless though legitimate people shrank from it because it lay so close to what was illegitimate and in marrying a cousin seemed almost to marry a sister for cousins are so closely related that they are called brothers and sisters and are almost really so but the ancient fathers fearing that near relationship might gradually in the course of generations diverge and to become distant relationship or cease to be relationship at all religiously endeavoured to limit it by the bond of marriage before it became distant and thus as it were to call it back when it was escaping them and on this account even when the world was full of people though they did not choose wives from among their sisters or half-sisters yet they preferred them to be of the same stock as themselves 
but who doubts that the modern prohibition of the marriage even of cousins is the more seemly regulation, not merely on account of the reason we have been urging, the multiplying of relationships, so that one person might not absorb two, which might be distributed to two persons, and so increase the number of people bound together as a family, but also because there is in human nature I know not what natural and praiseworthy shamefacedness which restrains us from desiring that connection which, though for propagation, is yet lustful, and which even conjugal modesty blushes over, with any one to whom consanguinity bids us render respect. The sexual intercourse of man and woman, then, is in the case of mortals a kind of seedbed of the city. But while the earthly city needs for its population only generation, the heavenly needs also regeneration to rid it of the taint of generation. Whether before the deluge there was any bodily or visible sign of regeneration, such as was afterwards enjoined upon Abraham when he was circumcised, or what kind of sign it was, the sacred history does not inform us. But it does inform us that even these earliest of mankind sacrificed to God, as appeared also in the case of the two first brothers. Noah, too, is said to have offered sacrifices to God when he had come forth from the ark after the deluge. And concerning this subject we have already said in the foregoing books that the devils arrogate to themselves divinity, and require sacrifice that they may be esteemed gods, and delight in these honors on no other account than this, because they know that true sacrifice is due to the true God. CHAPTER Seventeen. Since, then, Adam was the father of both lines, the father, that is to say, both of the line which belonged to the earthly, and of that which belonged to the heavenly city, when Abel was slain, and by his death exhibited a marvellous mystery, there were henceforth two lines proceeding from two fathers, Cain and Seth, and in those sons of theirs, whom it behooved to register, the tokens of these two cities began to appear more distinctly. For Cain begat Enoch, in whose name he built a city, an earthly one, which was not from home in this world, but rested satisfied with its temporal peace and happiness. Cain, too, means possession, wherefore at his birth either his father or mother said, I have gotten a man through God. Then Enoch means dedication, for the earthly city is dedicated in this world in which it is built, for in this world it finds the end towards which it aims and aspires. Further, Seth signifies resurrection, and Enos his son signifies man, not as Adam, which also signifies man, but is used in Hebrew indifferently for man and woman, as it is written, Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, leaving no room to doubt that though the woman was distinctly called Eve, yet the name Adam, meaning man, was common to both. But Enos means man in so restricted a sense that Hebrew linguists tell us it cannot be applied to woman. It is the equivalent of the child of the resurrection, when they neither marry nor are given in marriage. For there shall be no generation in that place to which regeneration shall have brought us. Wherefore I think it not immaterial to observe that in those generations which are propagated from him who is called Seth, although daughters as well as sons are said to have been begotten, no woman is expressly registered by name. But in those which sprang from Cain at the very termination to which the line runs, the last person named as begotten is a woman. For we read, Methusael begat Lamech, and Lamech took unto him two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Adah bare Jabal, he was the father of the shepherds that dwell in tents. 
and his brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all such as handled the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubalcane was Nema. Here terminate all the generations of Cain, being eight in number, including Adam, to wit seven from Adam to Lamech, who married two wives, and whose children, among whom a woman also is named, form the eighth generation, whereby it is elegantly signified that the earthly city shall to its termination have carnal generations proceeding from the intercourse of males and females, and therefore the wives themselves of the man who was the last-named father of Cain's line are registered in their own names, a practice nowhere followed before the deluge save in Eve's case. Now as Cain, signifying possession, the founder of the earthly city, and his son Enoch, meaning dedication, in whose name it was founded, indicate that this city is earthly both in its beginning and in its end, a city in which nothing more is hoped for than can be seen in this world, so Seth, meaning resurrection, and being the father of generations registered apart from the others, we must consider what this sacred history says of his son. Chapter 18 and to Seth, it is said, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. He hoped to call on the name of the Lord God. Here we have a loud testimony to the truth. Man, then, the son of the resurrection, lives in hope. He lives in hope as long as the city of God, which is begotten by faith in the resurrection, sojourns in this world. For in these two men, Abel, signifying grief, and his brother Seth, signifying resurrection, the death of Christ and his life from the dead are prefigured. And by faith in these is begotten in this world the city of God, that is to say, the man who has hoped to call on the name of the Lord. For by hope, says the apostle, we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we wait with patience for it. Who can avoid referring this to a profound mystery? For did not Abel hope to call upon the name of the Lord God when his sacrifice is mentioned in Scripture as having been accepted by God? Did not Seth himself hope to call on the name of the Lord God, of whom it was said, For God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel? Why then is this which is found to be common to all the godly specially attributed to Enos, unless because it was fit that in him, who is mentioned as the firstborn of the father of those generations which were separated to the better part of the heavenly city, there should be a type of the man or society of men, who live not according to man in contentment with earthly felicity, but according to God in hope of everlasting felicity? And it was not said, He hoped in the Lord God, nor He called on the name of the Lord God, but he hoped to call on the name of the Lord God. And what does this hope to call mean, unless it is a prophecy that a people should arise, who according to the election of grace, would call on the name of the Lord God? It is this which has been said by another prophet, in which the apostle interprets of the people who belong to the grace of God, and it shall be that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For these two expressions, and he called his name Enos, which means man, and he hoped to call on the name of the Lord God, are sufficient proof that man ought not to rest his hopes in himself. As it is elsewhere written, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man. Consequently no one ought to trust in himself that he shall become a citizen of that other city which is not dedicated in the name of Cain's son in this present time, that is to say, in the fleeting course of this mortal world, but in the immortality of perpetual blessedness.
Chapter 19 For that line also, of which Seth as the father has the name Dedication in the seventh generation from Adam, counting Adam, for the seventh from him is Enoch, that is, Dedication, but this is that man who was translated because he pleased God, and who held in the order of the generations a remarkable place, being the seventh from Adam, a number signalized by the consecration of the Sabbath. But counting from the diverging point of the two lines, or from Seth, he was the sixth. Now it was on the sixth day God made man, and consummated his works. But the translation of Enoch prefigured our deferred dedication. For though it is indeed already accomplished in Christ our head, who so rose again that he shall die no more, and who was himself also translated, yet there remains another dedication of the whole house, of which Christ himself is the foundation. And this dedication is deferred till the end, when all shall rise again to die no more. And whether it is the house of God, or the temple of God, or the city of God, that is said to be dedicated, it is all the same, and equally in accordance with the usage of the Latin language. For Virgil himself calls the city of widest empire the house of Asaracus, meaning the Romans, who were descended through the Trojans from Asaracus. He also calls them the house of Aeneas, because Rome was built by those Trojans who had come to Italy under Aeneas. For that poet imitated the sacred writings in which the Hebrew nation, though so numerous, is called the house of Jacob. Chapter 20 Someone will say, if the writer of this history intended, in enumerating the generations from Adam through his son Seth, to descend through them to Noah, in whose time the deluge occurred, and from him again to trace the connected generations down to Abraham, with whom Matthew begins the pedigree of Christ, the eternal king of the city of God, what did he intend by enumerating the generations from Cain, and to what terminus did he mean to trace them? We reply to the deluge, by which the whole stock of the earthly city was destroyed, but repaired by the sons of Noah. For the earthly city and community of men who live after the flesh will never fail until the end of this world, of which our Lord says, The children of this world generate and are generated. But the city of God, which sojourns in this world, is conducted by regeneration to the world to come, of which the children neither generate nor are generated. In this world generation is common to both cities, though even now the city of God has many thousand citizens who abstain from the act of generation, yet the other city also has some citizens who imitate these, though erroneously. For to that city belong also those who have erred from the faith, and introduced diverse heresies, for they live according to man, not according to God. And the Indian gymnosophists, who are said to philosophize in the solitudes of India in a state of nudity, are its citizens, and they abstain from marriage. For continence is not a good thing except when it is practised in the faith of the highest good, that is, God. Yet no one is found to have practised it before the deluge, for indeed even Enoch himself, the seventh from Adam, who is said to have been translated without dying, begat sons and daughters before he was translated, and among these was Methuselah, by whom the succession of the recorded generations is maintained.
Why, then, is so small a number of Cain's generations registered, if it was proper to trace them to the deluge, and if there was no such delay of the date of puberty as to preclude the hope of offspring for a hundred or more years? For if the author of this book had not in view some one to whom he might rigidly trace the series of generations, as he designed in those which sprang from Seth's seed to descend to Noah, and thence to start again by a rigid order, what need was there of omitting the first-born sons for the sake of descending to Lamech, in whose sons that line terminates, that is to say, in the eighth generation from Adam, or the seventh from Cain, as if from this point he had wished to pass on to another series, by which he might reach either the Israelitish people, among whom the earthly Jerusalem presented a prophetic figure of the heavenly city, or to Jesus Christ, according to the flesh who is over all, God blessed for ever, the maker and ruler of the heavenly city." What, I say, was the need of this, seeing that the whole of Cain's posterity were destroyed in the deluge? From this it is manifest that they are the first-born sons who are registered in this genealogy. Why, then, are there so few of them? Their numbers in the period before the deluge must have been greater if the date of puberty bore no proportion to their longevity, and they had children before they were a hundred years old. For supposing they were on an average thirty years old when they began to beget children, then, as there are eight generations, including Adam and Lamech's children, eight times thirty gives two hundred and forty years, did they then produce no more children in all the rest of the time before the deluge? With what intention, then, did he who wrote this record make no mention of subsequent generations? For from Adam to the deluge there are reckoned, according to our copies of Scripture, two thousand two hundred and sixty-two years, and according to the Hebrew text, one thousand six hundred and fifty-six years. Supposing, then, the smaller number to be the true one, and subtracting from 1,656 years 240, is it credible that during the remaining 1,400 and odd years until the deluge the posterity of Cain begat no children? But let any one who is moved by this call to mind that when I discuss the question how it is credible that those primitive men could abstain for so many years from begetting children, two modes of solution were found either a puberty late in proportion to their longevity, or that the sons registered in the genealogies were not the first-born, but those through whom the author of the book intended to reach the point aimed at, as he intended to reach Noah by the generations of Seth. So that, if in the generations of Cain there occurs no one whom the writer could make it his object to reach by omitting the first-born, and inserting those who would serve such a purpose, then we must have recourse to the supposition of a late puberty, and say that only at some age beyond a hundred years they became capable of begetting children, so that the order of the generations ran through the first-born, and filled up even the whole period before the deluge, long though it was." It is, however, possible that for some more secret reason which escapes me, this city, which we say is earthly, is exhibited in all its generations down to Lamech and his sons, and that then the writer withholds from recording the rest which may have existed before the deluge. And without supposing so late a puberty in these men, there might be another reason for tracing the generations by sons who were not first born, namely that the same city which Cain built, and named after his son Enoch, may have had a widely extended dominion, and many kings, not reigning simultaneously, but successively, the reigning king begetting always his successor. 
Cain himself would be the first of these kings, his son Enoch, in whose name the city in which he reigned was built, would be the second, the third Irad, whom Enoch begat, the fourth Mahujael, whom Irad begat, the fifth Methusael, whom Mahujael begat, the sixth Lamech, whom Methusael begat, and who was the seventh from Adam through Cain. But it was not necessary that the firstborn should succeed their fathers in the kingdom, but those would succeed who were recommended by the possession of some virtue useful to the earthly city, or who were chosen by lot, or the son who was best liked by his father, would succeed by a kind of hereditary right to the throne. And the deluge may have happened during the lifetime and reign of Lamech, and may have destroyed him, along with all other men, save those who were in the ark. For we cannot be surprised that during so long a period from Adam to the deluge, and with the ages of individuals varying as they did, there should not be an equal number of generations in both lines, but seven in Cain's and ten in Seth's. For as I have already said, Lamech is the seventh from Adam, Noah the tenth. And in Lamech's case, not one son only is registered, as in the former instances, but more, because it was uncertain which of them would have succeeded when he died, if there had intervened any time to reign between his death and the deluge. But in whatever manner the generations of Cain's line are traced downwards, whether it be by first-born sons or by the heirs to the throne, it seems to me that I must by no means omit to notice that when Lamech had been set down as the seventh from Adam, there were named in addition as many of his children as made up this number to eleven, which is the number signifying sin, for three sons and one daughter are added. The wives of Lamech have another signification, different from that which I am now pressing. For at present I am speaking of the children, and not of those by whom the children were begotten. Since, then, the law is symbolized by the number ten, whence that memorable decalogue, there is no doubt that the number eleven, which goes beyond ten, symbolizes the transgression of the law, and consequently sin. For this reason eleven veils of goat-skin were ordered to be hung in the tabernacle of the testimony, which served in the wanderings of God's people as an ambulatory temple. And in that haircloth there was a reminder of sins, because the goats were to be set on the left hand of the judge. And therefore when we confess our sins we prostrate ourselves in haircloth, as if we were saying what is written in the psalm, My sin is ever before me. The progeny of Adam, then, by Cain the murderer, is completed in the number eleven which symbolizes sin, and this number itself is made up by a woman, as it was by the same sex that beginning was made of sin by which we all die. And it was committed that the pleasure of the flesh which resists the spirit might follow, and so Nama, the daughter of Lamech, means pleasure. But from Adam to Noah in the line of Seth there are ten generations. And to Noah three sons are added, of whom, while one fell into sin, two were blessed by their father. So that if you deduct the reprobate, and add the gracious sons to the number, you get twelve, a number signalized in the case of the patriarchs and of the apostles, and made up of the parts of the number seven multiplied into one another. For three times four, or four times three, give twelve. These things being so, I see that I must consider and mention how these two lines, which by their separate genealogies depict the two cities, one of earth-born, the other of regenerated persons, became afterwards so mixed and confused, that the whole human race, with the exception of eight persons, deserved to perish in the deluge. CHAPTER Twenty One. 
We must first see why, in the enumeration of Cain's posterity, after Enoch, in whose name the city was built, has been first of all mentioned, the rest are at once enumerated down to that terminus of which I have spoken, and at which that race and the whole line was destroyed in the deluge. While after Enos the son of Seth has been mentioned, the rest are not at once named down to the deluge, but a clause is inserted to the following effect. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him, male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, in the day when they were created. This seems to me to be inserted for this purpose, that here again the reckoning of the times may start from Adam himself, a purpose which the writer had not in view speaking of the earthly city, as if God mentioned it, but did not take account of its duration. But why does he return to this recapitulation, after mentioning the son of Seth, the man who hoped to call in the name of the Lord God, unless because it was fit thus to present these two cities, the one beginning with a murderer and ending in a murderer, for Lamech too acknowledges to his two wives that he had committed murder, the other built up by him who hoped to call upon the name of the Lord God? For the highest and complete terrestrial duty of the city of God, which is a stranger in this world, is that which was exemplified in the individual who was begotten by him who typified the resurrection of the murdered Abel. That one man is the unity of the whole heavenly city, not yet indeed complete, but to be completed, as this prophetic figure foreshows. The son of Cain, therefore, that is, the son of possession, and of what but an earthly possession, may have a name in the earthly city which was built in his name. It is of such, the psalmist says, they call their lands after their own names. Wherefore they incur what is written in another psalm, Thou, O Lord, in thy city wilt despise their image. But as for the son of Seth, the son of the resurrection, let him hope to call on the name of the Lord God. For he prefigures that society of men which says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, I have trusted in the mercy of God. But let him not seek the empty honours of a famous name upon the earth, for blessed is the man that maketh the name of the Lord his trust, and respecteth not vanities nor lying follies. After having presented the two cities, the one founded in the material good of this world, the other in hope in God, but both starting from a common gate opened in Adam into this mortal state, and both running on and running out to their proper and merited ends, Scripture begins to reckon the times, and in this reckoning includes other generations, making a recapitulation from Adam, out of whose condemned seed, as out of one mass handed over to merited damnation, God made some vessels of wrath to dishonour, and other vessels of mercy to honour, in punishment rendering to the former what is due, in grace giving to the latter what is not due, in order that by the very comparison of itself with the vessels of wrath, the heavenly city which sojourns on earth may learn not to put confidence in the liberty of its own will, but may hope to call on the name of the Lord God. For will, being a nature which was made good by the good God, but mutable by the immutable, because it was made out of nothing, can both decline from good to do evil, which takes place when it freely chooses, and can also escape the evil and do good, which takes place only by divine assistance. End of Book 15, Chapters 15-21 through 21. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org